This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. This is episode three of the Angry Tech News podcast for Friday, September 24th, 2021 at angrytechnews.com. I'm your host, Ryan Bemrose. Today is all about encrypting things, root certificates, authentication, and of course, currencies, plus the usual poke at Apple because they just keep doing the things that make me want to rant at them. So here's the news. From the Encrypt All the Things department. IDEN Trust's DST Root CAX3 certificate is set to expire on September 30th. You might not have heard of it, but it has been with you for up to the last 20 years, powering that little HTTPS security lock on your browser bar. This is not the first time that a Root CA has expired, nor will it be the last. A major one called AdTrust External CA Root expired in May of 2020 and broke a lot of things. But then again, if you weren't using one of the things it broke, you might not have noticed. So why is this one interesting? Well, back in 2014, when web encryption was relatively new, a startup called Let's Encrypt came on the scene and started issuing certificates. A device has two ways to decide whether to trust encryption signed by a certificate. First, every device has a list of trusted certificates. Anything signed by these is trusted. Second, a certificate can be signed by another certificate, which itself can be signed by another and so on and so on, forming what's called a certificate chain. If the chain leads back to one of the certificates in the trusted root list, then the certificate is trusted. The list of root certificates is generally managed by the device vendor and updated through system updates. For example, my Windows 8 certificate store lists 53 trusted root certificates, most of which were put there by Microsoft. When Let's Encrypt was starting out, they weren't really big enough for the existing OS and browser vendors, Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, etc., to care whether they existed. So they made a deal with a company called IdenTrust to sign all of the Let's Encrypt certificates with IdenTrust's root. Which brings us to next week. The IdenTrust root is expiring. It's not valid after September 30th of 2021. So according to CRT.sh, there are currently 2.6 billion valid certificates that are chained to the X3 certificate, which is expiring. While the vast majority of those aren't used anymore, they were either single use or they've since been replaced, there are still millions of active certificates in 2021, despite IdentTrust having replaced their certificate in 2014. Let's Encrypt themselves have their own ISRG root X1 certificate, which they self-signed now that they're big enough, where they have been issuing certificates on it since 2019. Why did they wait so long? Well, because older devices still don't contain ISRG root X1 in their list of trusted roots, meaning those devices can't use anything signed with it. They originally planned to have all issued certs on ISRG X1 by July of 2019, but in fact, Let's Encrypt postponed the plans because the number of old Android devices, which haven't taken an update since 2015, is still too high. Let's Encrypt finally finished their transition in January of 2021 and have been issuing on the new certificate ever since then, but it's cutting it pretty close to the September expiration of their old route. Okay, come on, Bemrose, you might say. Enough geek talk. What does this really mean? Well, it means that next Thursday, when IdenTrust's root certificate expires, anything still using it will no longer authenticate. 
When that happens, sites will show SSL error pages to users. Transactions will mysteriously fail. APIs will break. Connections won't connect. Basically, all the worst parts of the Bible. Well, the, the, the digital Bible, anyway. But what will actually fail? Well, we have no idea. It depends on who's still using the unupdated certificate and where they are in this Byzantine stack of interconnected microservices that we call the Internet. Ironically, many of the old Android devices that I mentioned don't bother to check the expiration date of the cert in their stack, which means they'll continue working. But anything that has a proper implementation is kind of out of luck. So what can you do as an end user, you might ask? Well, nothing. Mostly you can keep your devices updated. And, and if you're using a device that the vendor is still updating, they'll be giving you a new certificate, but that's about it. If you're a server operator using let's encrypt, then make sure that you use a certificate that's been updated since January, 2021, or at least one that you can verify was signed with their ISRG route and not the expiring one. Let's encrypt has an extensive and highly technical page to help out server operators. Oh, and at the risk of interjecting something useful into this story, here's a brief list of Let's Encrypt, uh, from Let's Encrypt, of what won't have the updated certificate. And if you're running any of these, God help you. OpenSSL 1.02 and earlier from January of 2015. Android 2.35 and older. Windows XP SP2 and earlier. Mac OS Sierra and earlier. Windows 7, Windows 8 devices that have not taken an update since 2015. Firefox 49 and earlier, Ubuntu 16.03 and earlier, Debian 7 or older, and older versions of Java 7 and 8. For the most part, those are all have been replaced for years. So you should be okay as long as you've just been doing updates. But come on, Internet. <laughs> From the security through giving up control department, Microsoft is going passwordless. Microsoft has identified a problem. They decided that passwords are a pain. Passwords are highly fishable. And they have decided that passwords are to blame for nearly all computer security issues. And so Microsoft has announced that they are enabling Windows to be passwordless. Starting on the 15th of September, you can completely remove the password from your Microsoft account and use only Microsoft authentication technologies like Windows Hello and a phone authenticator app, and only on systems that support these technologies, of course, running Microsoft software, of course. Distilled down, a password is really just a digital key used for authenticating a user. Digital keys have to be long to protect against brute force or dictionary attacks, or, or just guessing. For the classic single-factor authentication model, the password is the whole key. So in order for a password to be secure, it has to be long. This is ultimately the root problem with a password is it has to be long to be secure, but that's one of the reasons that passwords are so hard to remember. Uh, cryptographic keys meant for computers uh, by comparison are hundreds of characters long, but nobody wants to remember that. So Microsoft isn't really wrong here. People do hate passwords. They're hard to remember with all those numbers and symbols. And, and usually to remember what you do is you write it down on a post-it note or something next to your screen, which Kind of defeats the purpose, at least in the case of a physical location attacker. Passwords are also about a thousand times worse when you're forced to change them every three months. I originally got this story from an article penned by Kyle Rankin, chief of security at Librem Social, who points out these problems are Microsoft's fault. He says if passwords are broken, it's because Microsoft broke them. Active directory requirements around complexity and length have driven the market for 
password rules everywhere. IT people just flip on the requirements around password complexity that come with Active Directory because they think that that's going to make them more secure. What it really does is it makes passwords impossible to remember, but not significantly harder to crack. Most password breaches, in fact, are phished. They are, you know your password and you put it into the wrong form on the wrong web page or something else. Most of the rest of passwords that are breached are guessed using human psychology. Just an example of the Active Directory requirements, if an organization requires, say, a capital letter, a symbol, and two numbers, then better than at Vegas odds, your password is probably going to be a capitalized dictionary word with two numbers on the end and a symbol straight out of the top row of the keyboard. People have no incentive to make their password better either because they'll just have to change it soon anyway. Forced password changes are 90% security theater, in my opinion, at least. If a password doesn't expire, or at least takes long enough to expire, we know that people will put more effort into them. They'll make longer passwords, which are more secure. They'll take the time to memorize them. And if, if a password is breached, most of the time when, when you, an attacker learns your password, they use it immediately anyway. The, the delay of, oh, three months from now it's going to expire doesn't really do anything. Oh, and by the way, a pretty well-known security fact is that the number one indicator of the strength of a password is the length of the password, period, end of story. So all those requirements around capital and lowercase letters and symbols and numbers, more theater. Well, Microsoft wants to do away with passwords entirely and switch to what they call multi-factor authentication or MFA. Your authentication key, which used to be just a password, is now broken up into multiple places. Microsoft wants to control most of those places for your convenience, of course. The only pieces that you will keep of your password are either a pin or your biometrics. Uh, we'll get back to biometrics later. But MFA is, is kind of like a pirate's treasure map, torn into four pieces and given to four different people. No one can find the treasure without all four pieces. You can keep external attackers away from the treasure by just keeping your piece of the map secure. But so can everybody else who has a piece of that map. In computing terms, this means Microsoft, who hold part of your map, have the ability to, at their sole discretion, lock you out of your treasure, if they decide. If, say, you violate somebody's terms of service or pirate an MP3. I don't think they're doing this now, but these are options. Microsoft likes to use the word trusted in lots of things. Remember that, that this is shorthand for trusted by Microsoft. But if you don't trust Microsoft, then everything that they trust becomes suspect. Is that really what you want? Microsoft has a lot of really smart people thinking about security, and you should believe that when it comes to external actors breaking into your system, they've thought through the scenarios. They are really quite good at, at securing things from these threat models, the external actors breaking in. But it's not difficult to surmise that not one of Microsoft's threat models include Microsoft itself as the adversary. In every one of their threat models, they are fully trusted and are your pal. Is that an assumption that you want to make for yourself or your organization? As an aside, I'm focusing mainly on personal hardware here, stuff that you own that you bought with your own money. If Microsoft owns the computer, or if your employer happens to fully trust Microsoft, then the owner of that system has every right to control what can be done with it. Microsoft has had enterprise systems for a long time, enterprise domains, Active Directory, that work for the company. I'm just alarmed by the announcement that they had recently that a TPM chip will be required for Windows 11 home versions. 
a TPM chip is, is a bit of cryptographic hardware, keys, certificates, etc., that are generally inaccessible to the user programs. The keys in there can be used to encrypt any other part of the system. In fact, aside from authentication, the number one use for TPM is something called BitLocker, which is full hard drive encryption. But if they're generally inaccessible to user programs, that means they're also generally inaccessible to you, which means that what you've got is a piece in your system that is working for Microsoft. Microsoft isn't doing it, or at least they say that they aren't, but white papers have been written about how to use TPN, TPM to authorize an executable before it's allowed to run based on a revocation list that Microsoft controls. This isn't theoretical either. Just ask any iOS user who's wanted to sideload apps. You have to use a crack to disable the built-in security features, something that Apple considers malware so that you can run things that Apple hasn't necessarily approved. We're headed toward a future in which you'll have to jailbreak your Windows 11 machine before you can run software that Microsoft didn't authorize. Don't get me wrong, these features will improve security against external attacks. Microsoft is not lying about that. But in their push for security, they are demanding full technical control of your system by eliminating passwords and controlling the cryptographic keys used for authentication. They can control what software you install, what media you can play, whether or not you can log in at all, and we have only their word that they won't abuse the privilege. Biometrics make the problem even worse. Suppose a, a crazy ex-boyfriend has a key to your house. What do you do? You change the locks. But you can't change your face or your fingerprints, well, short of extremely painful measures like blades and acid. And you can't create a new one if yours is compromised or blacklisted. The necessity of an anonymity in a technical police state is a rant for another show. But Microsoft says they are only using biometrics locally and only to unlock devices. I don't have any reason to doubt that, but by improving the technology and pushing public acceptance, they're normalizing using biometrics for authentication and they are paving the road to using it for identification. We only have their say so that they aren't. Even if Microsoft doesn't in the next few years, somebody will. Right now, fingerprint or iris scan is necessary to get into your computer under this new Windows Hello regime, but it's expanding. Go look at airline check-ins where a number of airports are now using facial recognition to check you into your boarding pass. And plenty of governments today want biometric recognition for their vaccine passports. So soon, you'll have to swipe your fingers or submit to facial scan to get a job, to get groceries, to enter buildings. Where does it end? From the cleaning up your own mess department, Apple has announced a partnership with stress, anxiety, and depression researchers at UCLA and pharmaceutical company Biogen Inc., hoping to use iPhone data to detect mental illness and cognitive decline. They say these studies could become the basis for unique iOS features in the future. This story came from the Wall Street Journal, but since Wall Street Journal wants to force me to sign up and give them money to read articles, I instead read one of the dozens of blogs and outlets happy to repost their content whole cloth, proving yet again that the internet interprets paywalls as damage and routes around. But I digress. The UCLA partnership, codenamed Seabreeze, started last fall and is expanding soon. Data being collected includes data from video camera, keyboard, audio sensors, information from the watch regarding movement, sleep, vital signs, as well as an analysis of facial expressions, tone of voice, walking gait, sleep cycles, typing speed and accuracy, and the content of messages sent or received. They're taking it all for this one. 
The Biogen study, codenamed Pi, launched Monday, and it will follow 20,000 participants for two years collecting data very similar to the Seabreeze study. According to the documents provided, half the participants are at known risk for mental decline, and the other half are also known iPhone users. This marks a shift for Apple's health division, who had previously focused their efforts on data from the Apple Watch, focusing now on the iPhone itself, presumably because they had already mined what data they were going to get from all three Apple Watch users. The Wall Street Journal article doesn't mention the delicious irony of oversharing gobs of personal data, slaving yourself to your phone on a regular basis, and running your life at the whim of a giant Silicon Valley corporation as a way to detect and potentially treat cognitive decline and mental illness, conditions which, in 2021, is increasingly being caused by an, in Americans by oversharing gobs of personal data, slaving yourself to your phone, and running your life at the whims of a giant Silicon Valley corporation. <laughs> And finally, from the guess who saw this coming department, China has implemented a complete ban on all cryptocurrencies. The People's Bank of China released an announcement earlier today that all crypto related transactions are now illegal in China. I'm going to say that again. All crypto related transactions are now illegal in China. The bank's statement said that virtual currencies, quote, are not legal and should not and cannot be used as currencies in the market. This includes buying and selling virtual assets, NFTs, and providing intermediary or pricing services for crypto transactions. The bank also banned token issuance financing, aka ICOs, and any overseas exchanges doing business with Chinese citizens or residents. Bitcoin dropped as much as 7% today after the news came out, although it was only through careful comparison of timestamps that we were able to distinguish it from any normal background value instability. Several other altcoins, Aether, Ripple, Solana, Stellar, Dogecoin, Polkadot, Polkadot there's, a, there's a coin called Polkadot, were also down 6 to 7% in a move that, to no one's surprise, pretty much exactly mirrored BTC. Chinese Bitcoin miners at one time, making up nearly 80% of the BTC mining capacity, have been closing down shop for the last several weeks due to China's antagonism toward crypto. You can expect congestion on the blockchain for at least the next two weeks as the hash rate drops significantly with the loss of these miners, meaning that BTC transactions will be much slower to process until the hash target adjusts. This will obviously have a major impact on the cryptocurrency markets, but I'm going to refrain from further speculation on it as this topic will surely be over-discussed by thousands of podcasters for weeks to come. I'd like to extend deep thanks to Sean McCune, Loretta Vandenberg, Raymond Zorger, and Curtis Peterson for supporting Angry Tech News this week, and to John Fletcher of the Hog Story podcast at hogstory.net, who was so happy that ATN used his intro jingle on episode number two that he made us an outro and sweepers as well. I'm sure you've been enjoying them. We release this show on the value for value model. Angry Tech News doesn't take advertising and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. So if you got value out of listening to Angry Tech News, please send value back. Go over to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send us what you think this has been worth to you, be it $5, $25, or $500. That's it for me. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay
Stay angry. Stay angry.